Welcome to the Unabridged Podcast. I'm Ashley. And this is Jen. Join us for bookish episodes and check out our website, unabridgedpod.com, where you can find lots of new bookish content to grow your TBR. Sign up for our newsletter to find out more about online book discussions and upcoming events. Find us on Patreon for extra unabridged content. Join us on Instagram and Facebook at Unabridged Pod and message us there or see our website to get plugged into the Unabridged community. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 238. This is our September book club episode focused on Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that we are reviving our Patreon community. And so we are putting new content there every month. If you miss our more frequent episodes, we are right now, our goal is to have an extra episode each month on Patreon. So you can find out more at patreon.com slash unabridged pod. And it's a great way for you to support the podcast and to help us meet our costs and to get a little extra bookish conversation over there. All right. Well, we are going to get started with our bookish check-in. Ashley, what are you reading? So one of the books I'm reading is Gail Honeyman's Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. And I've seen this one. This is definitely a backlist read that I've seen a lot, but didn't really know anything about. So I had that on my Kindle and had been interested in it, but mostly just because I saw that people really liked it. I didn't really know anything about it. We get to know Eleanor, and she is unusual in the sense that we can tell right away that she's pretty isolated. And so as the reader, you're getting to know her, and you're seeing that she goes to work all the time. She's very reliable, but she also lives a pretty lonely life. And, well, at first we see that she is alone a lot, and then over time we come to see that she's also lonely, that it's not just that she's alone, but she also has this feeling of isolation and doesn't really know how to make those connections. I think part of what makes her so interesting is that she has this crazy backstory. You can tell that she's had some really profound trauma that has happened to her, but for a long time, we do not know what that trauma is. And so we're seeing these awkward interactions with other people. We're seeing that she has these really strict routines and that those routines help keep her afloat. But we also see that she's got a lot. It's like an iceberg and she's at the, you know, we see the tip, but we're aware as readers that there's a whole lot under there, but we don't know what that that is really. Early on, this surprising event happens that completely changes your life. And it's just that as she is going down the street, an elderly man has a fall and needs medical care and EMTs have to be called. And so her and a co-worker are both there when this event happens. And so that leads to this really profound change in her life. So Sammy's the guy who um, needs to be taken to the hospital. And she and Raymond, who is somebody she works with at her office, but she really doesn't know very well, they both help to get Sammy to the hospital. Well, after that, Sammy winds up staying in the hospital. And so Raymond asks Eleanor if she wants to go visit him in the hospital. And that opens up this doorway into connecting to other people in a way that makes it clear for sure to the reader, but I think also to Eleanor to a certain extent, just how isolated she was before. Because we start to realize how 
unbelievably infrequently she's ever interacting with any other people. So she goes to work, but she's very much in her own bubble. And then there's no contact. No one's calling her. No one's coming to buy to visit. She's just, like I said before, you know, at first you think that she just is living alone, but then it becomes more apparent that she's just really lonely and really isolated. And even though she's living in this big city, she still is just really by herself. And so Raymond invites her to come visit Sammy. As she does that, she starts to realize that she has something to offer other people and so that they want to be around her. And so then it results in her and Raymond also going to visit his mom. And his mom is so happy to see her and loves the company. And so, you know, she starts to realize like she has this something to offer. But we do see early on, like I said, she has this really traumatic past that we don't know a lot about. But we do see that the one ongoing connection she has every week is that she talks to her mother on the phone. And every time her mother is really berating her. And so that's the other thing we do know is that the one constant contact she has, we start to see pretty quickly is really negative. And so that's why she's so surprised when she's with Sammy and with Raymond's mom and even with Raymond that, like, they want to spend time with her. But she's missing, in part because she's been isolated a lot, she's missing a lot of the social cues that people just intuitively pick up on with practice. And so because she doesn't have those, that that's part of the thing is that she says whatever she thinks and she doesn't hold back on judgment or reproach or any of the other things that a lot of times in society we somewhat intuitively but also by learning know not to do. And so we see that also, that she's struggling with the awkwardness that comes with not following those social cues. And so that's part of her struggle, but also why it's so powerful that this one single event could kind of open this doorway for her. But meanwhile, she gets really interested in this musician that she sees perform, and she starts to decide that she's going to make a huge change, and she's just going to go change her whole life so that she can be with this musician. So I am just so interested in the story, and I'm pretty close to the end now, but I just, it was not at all what I expected, and I think that I was so surprised by Eleanor, but you just love her. I mean, as a reader, I think you just love her, and you celebrate with her, but you also understand how hard work it is to make change and to move forward and to get to know other people. And so I just, I'm interested to see what happens, you know, with Raymond. I'm interested to see where all those pieces fit in, but I am so intrigued by her character. And just like I said, it wasn't at all what I expected. I don't know what I expected. This book is not all what I expected, (laughs) but I have been loving it. So again, that's Gail Honeyman's Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. I absolutely loved that book. And I read it around the same time that I read Frederick Bachman's Brit Marie Was Here, which is a spinoff of My Grandmother Asked Me to Tell You She's Sorry. And Eleanor and Brit Marie are kindred spirits, I will just say. So yeah, if you're in the mood for another book like that, I don't know if you've read that one or not, Ashley, but... I have not read that yeah. one, so I might check it out. Yeah. They're not the same, but again, kindred spirits for sure. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. What about you, Jen? What what are you reading? I am reading Amiko Jean's Tokyo Dreaming, and I'm listening to this one on audio. It's narrated by Ali Ahn, and it is the sequel to Tokyo Ever After, which was a buddy read pick for us a while back. I can't remember how long ago. 
as always with sequels, it's tough to talk about this one without spoilers for the first book. So I will restrain myself here. But in the first book, in Tokyo Ever After, Izumi <laughs> discovers that she she never met her father and she discovers that he is the crown prince of Japan, you know, as you do. And <laughs> so she is a high school senior. She is sort of trying to figure out who she is. And once she finds out that that nugget of information, she decides to travel to Japan to meet her father, hoping that it will help her figure out who she is. A lot of things ensue, of course, in book one. And book two is a continuation of that. And it's really focused on the developing relationships and on seeing Izumi's mom and dad continue their relationship. They had not seen each other since Izumi was born. And so, you know, 17 years later, they meet up again. And so Tokyo Dreaming is just really about what it's like now that she knows who she is, kind of, how does she live that identity and what does she want it to look like? And then what do her parents want their relationship? Do they want a relationship other than just being Izumi's parents? So I think that is all I can say without spoilers, but I will just say, I love this series so much. It is light without being superficial or flippant. Izumi, I think, is dealing with a lot of identity questions that anyone of that age is dealing with. Of course, with the added complication of being part of this royal family and what it means to have a very public-facing life and still try to protect who you are and how to be yourself in the midst of all of that. So it is so good. Yes. Ashley, have you read this? Did you read the sequel? No, no. Oh, I, was, when I saw it. it on the list. I was like, oh my gosh, I love Tokyo Ever After so much. And I hadn't even thought about the sequel. So yes, when I saw it, when I saw you had it listed for your check-in, I was like, I gotta read yes, that. Yes, it's on script. So, very soon. And it is making oh, there me you go. very happy. So yeah, I really there you go. I'm loving I it. I will be joining in on that soon. <laughs> that sounds great. And that's what I listened to the first I one. Did and too. I did absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So good. I, I think I did a mix actually the first time. And this one, the, it's not very long on audio. So I just decided to do audio all the way. It wasn't available for me to check out the print. So yeah. All right. Well, we are going to move on to our book club discussion. I'll read a brief synopsis and then we'll start digging in. Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles is a retelling of the Iliad through the eyes of Patroclus, the loyal companion and great love of Achilles. Exploring the legend from a new perspective provides insight into both the heroes of the Trojan War and the ordinary people whose lives were shaped by others' actions. It's a novel of love and war, gods and mortals. All right. So we're going to start, as we always do, with our overall impressions. Ashley, what do you think? I loved this one. It's rare that both of us have read a book before Mm -hmm. and then talked about it for book club, but I have read it before. And this time I read and did the audio and both were great. I kind of went back and forth. And yeah, overall, I mean, I just absolutely loved it. I was completely swept away when I read it the first time. You never know with a rereading when you are really blown away by a book, how it'll stand up to a rereading. And I was not disappointed. And yeah, so I just think it's phenomenal. I love the love story at the center. And I love, like Jen said in the summary, about how it's both about the heroes, but also about the ordinary people, and also about how the heroes are ordinary people who make ordinary mistakes. And so I think we really see all of that in this one, and that I really loved all that. 
So what about you, Jen? What were your overall impressions? Yeah, same. So when I read this the first time, it was my first Madeline Miller book, and I didn't know what to expect. And I just fell in love. And again, like you were saying, you know, you just never know the second time through because there's not that sense of surprise. Of course, you know the what happens in the Iliad, and but you don't know with this new perspective what it's going to be like. And I just, everything resonated all over again. I love the love story. There's that sense of dread because we all know what's going to happen. And yet it doesn't take away from the beauty of that love story at all. Uh, and I just think the way Miller unfolds Patroclus's story, his relationship with Achilles, and then what happens after his death is just so gorgeous. Her writing is phenomenal. I just, every sentence, I highlighted so many quotations from this book. <laughs> yeah, I just absolutely loved it. All right. So now more specifically, and I think both of us could have an infinite list for what worked for us, but we'll each pick one thing to highlight what worked for us. There were things I saw differently the second time. And so we could kind of explore that a little bit. But something that I found deeply impactful and that I thought resonated when I first read it, but then I saw again this time, is how I love how pure Achilles and Patroclus' love is. And I think we see this just beautiful relationship. And yet, as the reader, we see how even that is not enough to prevent the pride, to prevent the choices, to prevent the things that inevitably lead to tragedy. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what was so striking to me when I first read it. And it's still one of the things I find most impactful about the book is just the way that that literally epic story is told in a very human way and really looking at the people and the inside parts of what brings about these epic stories. And so, yeah, I think that that is still something I would say that that struck me in the beginning and with the rereading, it's still one of my most favorite aspects is just that really, really microscope look at the inner workings, but then all of that, you also get that larger view of how profoundly it affects a ton of people. So what about you, John? Yeah, I just want to comment on that. So I've never read the Iliad. So the parts of it I knew were just, you know, the Trojan horse. And I knew about Achilles being dipped in the river Styx, except for his heel, which is why, you know, the Achilles heel thing, which Miller doesn't even use as her part of this book. And I'd never heard of Patroclus. And so I think (laughs) to take this, I mean, clearly he's in the Iliad, but to take someone of whom I had never heard and make him so, you know, it's the whole, who is the real hero here, right? And so the things that he does and the sacrifices he makes and yeah, just the way that he help shape who Achilles is. And yet, as you're saying, there's still that tragic flaw that Achilles has. And it's not his Achilles heel. It's his pride that you can't change who people are. Yeah, I think I agree that really Miller does such a brilliant job of focusing on that. Yeah, I felt like 
what you were saying about who's the real hero. I mean, I think the part with Briseis is so interesting in bringing in that part, in, in that aspect of how, I mean, when after Patroclus dies and she says he's worth 10 of you and you, you would not protect him, you made this happen. And I think that moment where she could see him in a way that Achilles, for all his love of Patroclus, he could not see that. Yeah. And he didn't he didn't see it. And I think Patroclus in his relationship was so happy with their dynamics that he did not mind yes. that. But I think we see as the reader how central he is and how different his choices would have been. And yet I also feel like part of what I loved is Miller's unpacking of what gets to the moments that Achilles makes these horrific decisions that we're so angry about and how in some ways it is him as the central heroic figure that inevitably lead to him becoming so flawed. I mean, I think that we know, and I think that's part of how Patroclus can tolerate those things in Achilles. And and even in those moments, I mean, like you said, I highlighted a million passages. I could read half the book mm-hmm. on the recording. But I think in those passages where he's like, I knew what I was signing up for when I said I would go with him to the end. Like, I knew what that was going to look like. But he comes home with blood on his armor, and I want to shame him for killing people. But I knew what I agreed right. to. And so I feel like there's that for both of them, that like they're aware of what they signed up for, even if they felt like there were steps they could have taken that would have prevented that from being the choices that they ultimately have have to make. But then they both recognize that like they made them. They made them. And because they made them, then they're in these circumstances. And yet Achilles goes so far. He goes so far into his pride that it's painful for the reader. Because I think in a lot of ways, we love him just like Patroclus loves him. But then you get to this moment where it's hard to love him and it's hard to accept the things that he's doing. And that's why that I loved I loved everything about the Briseis character. Mm-hmm. And I felt like her entrance into the story creates this additional dynamic that I think helps us see Patroclus in a different light than we're able to see him prior. But I, that scene after he dies, when they are so angry with each other, I, I just thought it was really powerful, you know, where Achilles wanted him all to himself, even in death, he wanted him all to himself. And it was like her trying to reckon with him and say, how dare you? Yeah. How dare you think that you're the only one who suffers? And so, yeah, I thought all that was just richly told. Yeah. My brain is going in a million directions, but I just, I feel like I sort of answered what worked for me, but I'm still going to do one more. <laughs> It was sort of commentary on yours, sort of my thing. Anyway, all right. Well, I'm just going to perhaps ramble here for a minute. But so Thetis is this horrible presence through the whole book who hates Patroclus and who makes his life a misery and is constantly criticizing him just because of his mortality. And, you know, I get swept up in epics as much as anyone. And so I love those moments when we see how golden and shining Achilles is and you see how Patroclus is drawn to him. And you see why there's such a contrast for Thetis between her son, this golden shining, you know, human being and Patroclus. And yet after his death, when he's this spirit and he's sharing how he saw Achilles through his whole life with her, it's so beautiful because you see how she finally recognizes that there's something about mortality that she can't access, that she has not been able to recognize. And it's not like she's like, 
you know, oh, I would hug you if you were here because she's not that kind of being. But she comes to appreciate that the type of love Patroclus had for Achilles is not something she can match, she can mimic, she can imitate. And so I really loved that so much. And just the way the Thetis character, and you see that there's, you know, we all know that the gods are horrible and that they are petty and they do these things, but you see, she really did love Achilles and she wanted everything for him and how that closed her off from compassion for anyone else. Well, and she wanted everything for him, but she also felt that she knew what everything should look like. Mm -hmm. And that I thought was really powerful also, just like that commentary on Patroclus did not fit the mold she wanted Achilles to have. So even though she wanted everything for him, she would not yield in that and recognize until, like you said, until that very last time, you know, and so we just see how rigid... And we see that a lot. While Miller does not take on their relationship in any kind of super direct way, there is a lot of commentary about the attitudes that people had toward the two of them mm-hmm. as a couple and all the limitations of thought there. And, you know, there some of that is explored pretty directly in the sense of Patroclus says, you know, in the society at the time, which I felt like she, she kind of included in case people were not aware, yeah. but, you know, that it was common for Greek boys to be together sexually, but that that was totally frowned upon beyond mm-hmm. that point of their maturation. And so this idea that they would have this long-lasting love was not something that people respected or honored or would even want to acknowledge, really. And so, and I felt like that was true for Thetis as well, that, like, that was part of, you know, she wanted him to be, to sire a lot of children and to have, you know, we see that when she tries to just marry him off. So while she wants to protect him, like, she does not want him to die, she does have these plans for him that he does not want to yield to, which I thought were really interesting, too. Yeah. I want to say one more thing. I also think... You know, you always hear that the Trojan War started because of Helen and her beauty and blah, blah, blah. And you see the way that all comes about, but it's also just because they want to go to war. Like it's just, that is just an excuse for this horrible, how, I forget how many years it covers, but you know, more than a decade, right? Yeah. yeah, Decades long Mm -hmm. battle that is about nothing. It is about nothing except the inclination that this is something that you do. And this is the way heroes are made and everybody wants to be a hero. And and this is how you serve. Yes. And you have to serve. If you're honorable, you have to serve. And, and you see just yeah. the drudgery and the filth and everything ugly that comes along with it and the way that it brings out the worst parts of people. And it's not that there aren't heroes there who do amazing things, but it also just is about this petty squabble over the things that you want or the people that you've seized. And I think Miller does such a good job at zeroing in on the pettiness of it all and the way it's all just built on this flimsy excuse for what it's about, that you made a vow that you were going to protect this marriage. (laughs) Like what? That Of course, that's not what it's about. Anyway, I just think she highlights that so well. Yeah, all the posturing, all of the ways that, I mean, Agamemnon's character is just atrocious. So like I said, we get to a point where we're pretty, I think, as a reader, pretty frustrated with Achilles, but it's nothing in comparison to that because it's just brutal for the sake of being brutal. Right. Mean for the sake of being mean. Could not be less concerned about the value of anyone's life but his own. 
And so I just felt like we saw a lot of that. I mean, then and Odysseus. Mm-hmm. Odysseus is such a terrible character in this, and he is so cunning. Yes. And manipulative and in it for himself. And so I just think, yeah, I loved all of that. That I thought that exactly what you said, that the war is not about anything other than men's egos. And all of the things that they do is just really to position themselves. But I thought it was also interesting. There was that part where, you know, she lists all the different nations and then talks about how the coming, how they become Greek. Right. And this kind of idea of like, it is through nationalism. And I mean, essentially through like the patriotic mumbo jumbo that you do that. And then you push those ideals and you push them for long enough. And eventually you merge people into these ideas of they reconstruct their own identities. Right. Yes. Through things like this. And I think it's so powerful. Yeah. And just shows how corrupt it is and how awful it is, but also how, like, it happens. Mm-hmm. I just think Miller is brilliant and smart. I mean, both writing-wise, but also just her ideas. I got to see her at the National Book Festival and just hearing her talk about it and the way she keyed in on so many things about the way mythology and stories like this still reveal things about human nature. And so I think that's just one example of where we see that. Yeah, it's it's a stunning book. All right. Well, as Ashley and I both mentioned, we both marked a ton of quotations, but we're <laughs> going to choose just one to discuss. Ashley, which one do you want to talk about? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, first I want to say, <laughs> I want to circle back. No, I just want to say one more thing that we didn't touch on the part with Chiron. Oh, so I right. just want to say, because my quote does not do this, but I just wanted to say, that is the other thing. If I if I were to choose a section that I found to be deeply impactful, the part with Chiron in the mountains is just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. But I think also part of why it's so beautiful is the contrast between this like escape from society and the world and then like the corruption of the world. Yes. And so there's this beautiful idyllic situation for these boys who fall in love with each other but also fall in love with the world but then they get threatened you know i mean then the war comes to them and they're faced with that reality and so yeah i love that too that was a whole nother part that i think is just so richly done and then how from that patroclus learns he learns medicine and he learns surgery that you know the whole concept that he'd never even heard of before and then how useful that becomes later on and it goes back to what you said in the beginning john about like who's the hero and what does it mean to be heroic and um yeah man so good yes okay so sorry that was no i'm so glad you brought it up because it is it's this shining moment in the book of yeah just like this reprieve and yeah i mean otherwise what i think is a I don't think it's a super heavy feeling book, but like you said, there is a sense of dread because we know all along the inevitable conclusion. And yet there is that part mm-hmm. that I think is just so lovely. So I have multiple ones, but I I think I'm going to go with this. And it's where Achilles says to Patroclus, will you come with me? He asked. The never-ending ache of love and sorrow, perhaps in some other life I could have refused, could have torn my hair and screamed and made him face his choice alone but not in this one. He would sail to Troy and I would follow even into death. Yes, I whispered. Yes. Oh my gosh, I could cry right now. (laughs) (laughs) That was part of why I didn't pick the one at the end that you said earlier, Jen. I started to pick that where he was just had that like the memories of all the things they experienced together. And I was like, I can't read that on air. I'm not going to get through it. So that's okay. But it's really beautiful. But yeah, I think what we talked about before about the flaws that we cannot escape and also the way that we accept them in each other. And I think that's why that was so powerful to me is just I really 
loved throughout how Patroclus chooses love and chooses Achilles over and over and over again. And I think that's part of why I think it's such a beautiful love story is because it's not just the love they have for each other, but also the active effort to continue to choose each other at every turn. And I think that's what we really see there is that he knows exactly what is to come and finds a way to choose it and is regretful about me. I think I love that where he's like, perhaps in some other life I could have refused. Like this idea that like maybe there was another pathway, but in this life, in this moment, in this world, like this is, this is the pathway always. And so I think, yeah, I mean, it's beautiful, but tragic. I mean, so yeah. Well, and what I love about that is I think this so easily could have been Patroclus just worshiping Achilles and always being the one to follow him. But Achilles had not vowed to protect this marriage and Patroclus had, and Achilles tells him, if you have to go, I will go with you. So we see that Achilles is also really loves Patroclus and is always choosing him and tries to care for him in every way he can. You know, of course he's human and he has weaknesses and he makes horrible mistakes, but it really is a mutual relationship. It's not just about Patroclus worshiping Achilles. And I love that as well. Yeah. And I think going back to the part where Briseis is so angry with Achilles for letting Patroclus go, but I think it was Achilles' love for Patroclus that he let him go. Yes. I mean, I think it was like, even in that moment that brings about his death, which we, we as the reader, grieve, we see that it was him giving Patroclus the ability to choose that out of love. Right. If he had loved him less, he would have refused. And so I think like that was really powerful too, that even in that moment, and again, you know, we do question, I mean, I think her questions there about he was worth 10 of you and like, who is the hero? I think all those questions are valid, but Achilles' equal love for Patroclus and seeing him as an equal, yeah, I think is unquestionable throughout the book, which is really remarkable. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jen? What's your quote? <laughs> So I'm not sure if this is going to uncover new ground, but I just love this so much. So it happens really early and it's after Patroclus has gone to live with Achilles and his family. And, you know, he's been cast out from his home and he's watching Achilles and he says, that is what a prince should be. And that I actually look just now at my Kindle because I thought, doesn't he say it more than once? And he doesn't, but it just feels like that echoes through the whole book that. Patroclus feels that Achilles is exactly what he should be and exactly the model for what he should be. And that's the way you should feel about people you love. And yet we all think it about Patroclus. I mean, I'm speaking for all readers here, but I just feel like Patroclus embodies so many things that a prince should be. And and it almost makes that more remarkable because he is so special that him choosing Achilles makes Achilles more special that him helping Achilles to see himself differently makes Achilles greater. If Achilles had only ever had his mom telling him, you know, the horrible Thetis telling him that he was a hero and he was special, I'm not sure it would have meant so much, but, but Patroclus feeds into that for Achilles. And when Achilles makes the right decisions, you know, when he does step forward and claim slaves, because he has, he's saving them. That's because of Patroclus. And that's because Patroclus sees him as someone who does the right thing, which then enables him to do it. 
And so I just think that quote, that is what a prince should be, is at the heart. You know, there are problems with that, but it's also at the heart of what goes right about their relationship and about the good things that come out of their pairing. Yes. Yeah. Another quote I thought about choosing was where Achilles spares the one son Mm -hmm. so that the family can continue. And Patroclus is like both mortified at himself for thinking that that's something we should value because he killed almost everyone and left this one person and how hard, like how horrible for the one person who survives. But also he's like, but this is a kindness no one else would give because then he lives on and he carries their name and he tells their story. And again, we see this world where your name and your story is your, it's everything. That's everything. And so even though that is such a small kindness, it also is an act of pardon that no one else, none of those kings or princes would have chosen. They would have wanted the honor of boasting that they had wiped them off the earth. I mean, I thought that all of that was just like so, yeah, exactly what you said, that like it is because of Patroclus that Achilles can be those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that even though he does horrible things, he is so much better. Yes, right. You know, you compare him and Agamemnon and there's, yeah, he's head and shoulders above him in kindness, even though he is so cruel and so destructive and kills so many people. Yes. Well, and again, I think that we see it all in context, but I feel like that's why the love story in this is so striking to me. Is like the ability of love to make us better. And I think, you know, that's what I think is so beautiful in this is just that we see that their relationship makes both of them so much better mm-hmm. than they would otherwise be. Yes. And that's what's so remarkable to me. Like, because for Patroclus, it was that he would give up, you know, and that he comes to, he, you know, Chiron says that thing to him. He's like, you don't give up what's what you've won so easily now that you did before because you have learned to fight for what you love. And so I feel like for both of them, we see that, like, the central love is the thing that brings about this beautiful, best self. And even though the best self is still flawed, it's a better version than they would have otherwise uh-huh. had. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I feel like we could talk about this all day, but we are going to move on (laughs) to our next category, which is pairings. So Ashley, what book do you think pairs well with the Song of Achilles? Well, rereading this made me be like, I've got to get back on this like reading of retellings because I did not know it was something I really enjoyed, but I really do love it. I really enjoy it. I love it with the myths. I love it with fairy tales, but I think it's so interesting to see how an author tells a story that people know in a different way. So the one I wanted to share is Jennifer Saint's Ariadne. This one focuses on Ariadne, who is the princess of Crete. She is, I don't know the mythology particularly well for people in my situation. She's most closely aligned to the story of the Minotaur. And so her the Minotaur is actually her half-brother on Crete and is brought about because the gods punish their family. And so her mother is mad. And in her madness, she mates with a beast. And that's what brings about the Minotaur. So the Minotaur is bloodthirsty and a problem problem for the island of Crete. And the way that they deal with it is by having these like horrible yearly sessions that they just let the Minotaur slaughter tons and tons and tons of people who are slaves coming from other places that then they let them be eaten. So it's a terrible system, but it is one, again, she, it is her half brother. And so she's kind of tied to it, but also can see that it's deeply problematic. And so in the beginning, this is coming to occur and thesis comes from Athens and 
he's coming on the boat with all the people who are coming to be sacrificed, and yet he's coming with the plan to kill the Minotaur. And so she's kind of swept up in this early early on in the book, and so she, I mean, somewhat naively, she aids him, thinking that, you know, he's going to bring about, he's going to marry her and take her away and do all these things, and, you know, that all she has to do is, like, help him make this happen. And so that comes to pass somewhat naively, and then things do not play out the way that she hopes. But then that results in a whole nother life. I mean, her her life takes a very different course from that moment. And I don't want to give anything away. I think it's really brilliantly done. But she winds up with a god and some other things unfold. But I think that so much comes to pass in that story. It's hard to believe the number of things that um, Jennifer Saint covers as far as just weaving the different myths together and how they fit. But I found it deeply impactful as far as some of the things we talked about in the sense of like the humans at the center of the stories. So there are these epic myths, but who are the humans and what choices do they individually make? What do they think when they make them that leads to this? But also it has a lot to do with love and pride. And so again, I don't want to give anything away, but I feel like some of those central issues are about like how far will you go for your pride? Mm-hmm. And if you get too focused on that, what happens? And I think all that's really well done. But I also love it explores the role of women. And and I think that Achilles touches on this. Circe, for sure, for Madeline Miller, mm-hmm. is much more about the exploration of women. But you do see it here with Briseis, with the slaves, with even with some of the other women characters in the story. But this one really looks at what does it look like for women? What does it look like to be a mother? What are the stakes for them? And also sort of how the women's lives are shaped by the men who make the choices and drive the governments. And so I feel like you come to see that a lot here, too. So again, that is Jennifer Saint's Ariadne, and I loved it. And um, yeah, I just thought that it has it touches on some similar themes and is also a retelling. Um, what about you, Jen? What's your pick? So I feel like I could sell this very easily. I have chosen Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls, which is also a retelling of the Trojan War from Briseis's perspective. And I read this very shortly after I read Song of Achilles. And, you know, I said earlier, I had not heard of Patroclus before. I certainly had not heard of Briseis before. And so it's just another example of when you look at something from someone else's point of view, everything, all all of the facets of that are revealed. And so while in Song of Achilles, we see Achilles's choice to take Briseis as sort of, you know, this treasure that he's won in Silence of the Girls, that is portrayed very differently because she is the one who's being taken. And sure, maybe he's not as abusive as Agamemnon, but it's still not great to be an enslaved person And, you know, Patroclus is still, I would say, kind, but he's more complicated as well because you're seeing him and his actions through Briseis's eyes. So it is definitely a feminist retelling of this whole story. And I think reading it alongside Song of Achilles, it just complicates things even more. And we just see even more the impact of the decisions of men on so many people and the impact of war. And you see Briseis's whole backstory as just 
this additional story that is very important to tell. So I loved it and I loved reading them close together. It, it just really made it resonate all the more. So that is Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls. And that is the first in a series. I don't know how many books there will be. I've only read this one, but I definitely will be continuing on with the story. So yeah, I haven't read that one, but like I said, I now's a good time to circle back. So maybe I will check that out. And that's what when I read Ariadne, I was like, oh, there's a slew of these that I want to yeah. read, particularly the feminist angles of it, because I think that's something that we haven't seen as much of until some of these more recent books have explored that. But it's something that we in modern times, are, of course, are aware of how impactful that was and for women, but just like thinking about what those perspectives looked like is important Mm -hmm. and also fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to read Ariadne. All right. Well, how many bookish hearts would you give this one? All the bookish hearts. Yeah. Same. (laughs) Uh, We we usually have a five point scale. So I guess I'll say five. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Like I said, I, I wasn't sure. I mean, it is one of the most impactful books I have read in recent years. And so I wasn't sure rereading. I sobbed my way through the first time. I did not sob my way through in the way that I did the first time, but I still found it deeply resonant on a lot of levels. So yep, I absolutely love it. Same. I think I loved it even more the second time through. I I cannot compare sobbing levels. I'm not sure. (laughs) A lot for both. (laughs) Maybe we should be giving teardrops instead of bookish hearts. (laughs) Well, and long-time listeners know that I'm not big on crying (laughs) in general or with books, but this one is worth the tears. So there you go. (laughs) All right. Well, we would love to know what you think of Song of Achilles. And if you decide to pick up one of our pairings, you can let us know what you think of those. To close out our episode, we're ending with our Give Me One. And our topic today is series worth rewatching. What do you think, Ashley? So one that I have not rewatched yet, but I'm definitely thinking is both worth it and I'm hoping to take on soon is Schitt's Creek. Mm-hmm. I just loved that. And I held out on the last few for a long time because I was sad that it was going to be over. And so I spaced those out, but it did finally reach the end and I would like to rewatch. Yeah. That one is on my list to rewatch. What about you, Jen? I, I will say I've rewatched Ted Lasso, Fleabag. I can endorse rewatching those. They are great the second time around, but one I really want to rewatch. So as we're recording, there is one more episode to go of Better Call Saul, which has been brilliant. But if you are a TV fan, you know that that is a spinoff of Breaking Bad. And watching Better Call Saul has made me want to rewatch Breaking Bad, which, yeah, I love the first time through. It is a heavy watch at times, but it is also brilliant. And yeah, so I'm ready, I think, to embark on that rewatch. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you all for listening. And don't forget to check out our newly revived Patreon, patreon.com slash unabridged pod. Thanks again. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at unabridged pod or on the web at unabridgedpod.com for ways to support us. To get more involved, you can sign up for our newsletter, join a buddy read, or become an ambassador. Thanks for listening to Unabridged.